So I think what Paul is concerned with is the now what of Christian life. A failing of Christianity, at least Christianity in America for some time, maybe in evangelicalism, is the emphasis on conversion. Just conversion. The emphasis on getting as many people saved as possible. And that's good and that's commendable. But I would argue that the New Testament has a greater emphasis on maturing the people of God. In fact, I would say that's a greater emphasis than get as many saved as possible. Of course, we want as many people to come to know the Lord as possible. But Paul's passion, I think the Lord's passion, is that his people would grow up, that they would mature. And so I think what's going on in these passages is the question, okay, well, I've, I've believed the gospel. I've entrusted my life to Jesus. I, I have the promise of eternal life, but what do I do with the next 30, 40, 50 years of my life? Uh, Paul is very interested in that. And I think that these verses here tonight are addressing that very thing. So let's look at verse, verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So Paul says, listen, you guys received the Lord Jesus Christ. You received him. You've believed. Uh, Now what? It's precisely the thing he's addressing. Just as you've received him, so now you should do something. And I think Paul, we we had baptisms, was that two weeks ago now? Uh, We had baptisms then. Paul would be pointing to that. In fact, he's going to get back into baptism. He's going to be addressing baptism again. And he's going to say, you believed in Jesus. You put your faith in him. You descended into the waters of baptism. And over that whole process, God the Father inserted you, connected you to his son through the power of the Holy Spirit. And now a new era has begun. That was not, that was not just a one-off thing to secure something eternally. That was the beginning of a whole new life. So now, how should that whole new life look? What what should you do with the rest of your life? There's a wonderful book by N.T. Wright called After You Believe. And that's what the whole book is about. It's, well, now that you've believed, what do you do? I would compare baptism, and I think maybe Paul would like this comparison, to a wedding ceremony. To a wedding ceremony. The point of the wedding ceremony is to inaugurate the marriage. Hold that thought. Swap it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, and we'll see. This one doesn't look any better. All right. So the, the point of the wedding ceremony is to inaugurate the marriage, right? It's to it's to set the whole thing in motion. And unfortunately, I think that many Christians have the wedding ceremony, that is, they believe, they get baptized, and then they don't move in together and begin a life together and live that life out. They don't go ahead and flesh that life out in their life together. And that's precisely what Paul is addressing here to this church that he's never been to. He doesn't know them personally, uh, but he's sharing his general message with them. So he says, and this is the prevailing thing, walk in him. Walk in him. You've received Jesus the Lord. You've gone down in the waters of baptism. You've been connected to him. Now walk in him. This is the controlling image. And Paul uses this in all of his letters. In fact, it's a, it's a very biblical image. It goes all the way back to the Old Testament. God tells Abraham, walk before me and be perfect. And here Paul says, walk in Christ. Uh, so what does that mean? Well, Paul will say things in this letter like, you've died 
and your life is hid with Christ in God. He said that you are all in him. Paul himself will say of his own life. Now listen to what he says. I have been crucified with Christ. Therefore, I no longer live. Paul no longer lives. Jesus Christ now lives in me. And the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul is to say, you're in Christ. You're connected to him. Now, what you need to do is go out and live your life. And in all of your life, learn to live it as Jesus would if he were you. Learn to live your life as a teacher, as a parent, as an engineer, as a programmer, as a farmer, as Jesus himself would live it if he were you. That's what, that's what Paul means by walking in Christ. And hopefully you'll forgive my analogy here, but I was thinking about uh, method acting. How many people know what method acting is? This kind of started in the 60s. Uh, some of the famous actors who are method actors, Marlon Brando, Robert De Niro, Meryl Streep. Method acting is a, is a school of acting where you come to try to totally identify with the person that you are depicting. You read about them, you study them, you dress like them, you try to eat like them, you try to take on their entire persona, all right? And it gets obnoxious, and some of these people are really crazy. I mean, I think it, it actually, I don't know, it kind of makes them a little crazy when they, when they really take on the personality of some of these people. Apparently, a lot of method actors, when they're offset, when they're not in character, on, I mean, when they're not acting before the camera, they're continuing to inhabit the character. They'll talk to you as if they're Abraham Lincoln, Daniel Day-Lewis, or whatever, right? So method acting as an approach. I want to suggest it's kind of like that for our lives. Because a method actor tries to inhabit this person. Tries to come to really understand how they think and what they feel. Comes to try to say, okay, well, if Jesus were in this situation where he's having a conflict with his wife... How would he behave? Right? Now, obviously, the analogy is limited, but I think it works pretty well. Because it means we have to become familiar with him. We have to become familiar with him in his word and know how he thinks and what makes him tick and what he's like. And somebody that's really good at that, they can, if you will, come into any circumstance in life and improvise. But here's the beauty. Not only is what we're trying to do like method acting, but we have him with us. We have the Holy Spirit in us. And it's not something that will drive us crazy. It's something that will make us sane. So it's like method acting, I don't know, is maybe pointing to what Christians are called to do as we walk out the Christian walk in everything we do. One of my favorite poems says that Christ plays in 10,000 places. Well, Christ wants to play in about 150 different places represented here. And in everything that we do, he wants to teach us how, how we can inhabit him and walk in him and become like him in all that we do. Verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So Paul says, listen, I want you to walk in Christ because you've received him, so walk in him. 
But then he says, but I want to warn you to avoid something. I want to warn you about reverting to something. And in order to address this, let me just ask this question. What is the most significant event you've lived through historically? I was thinking 9-11. That was a biggie in my life. A lot of people will, you know, they'll talk about the assassination of JFK. Um, some, I don't know if anybody in here was alive during World War II. You know, you think about big events in your life. Um, I think it's very difficult for us to realize that the most epic-changing event in history happened 2,000 years before we were born. We live in a world that takes for granted the incarnation, the life, and the death of Jesus. We don't know really what it's like to live in a world before Christ, before he fundamentally changed everything about the structure of reality and about the structure of relating to God and about the way the nations relate. So it's somewhat difficult for us to get at what Paul's talking about because Paul was living near the fault line of history, right? And his audience was living near that fault line. And there was a very strong temptation in their day to revert to patterns before Christ. So stick with me a bit because I want to try to relate what I think he's getting at. First of all, I don't think he's getting on to philosophy, the discipline of philosophy. Regardless of what you think about that, I don't think that's what Paul is addressing. All right? Look at the whole list again. Don't let anyone take you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. There's a way of thinking. There's a way of relating. There's a way of being that is connected with being in Christ. And there are all kinds of ways of thinking and relating and being that are outside of him. That are historically before him. And Paul wants to tell us, don't revert. Don't go back. Because the best has come. The best has come. He wants to say, guys, you're in Christ. You are heirs because you are in Christ of everything that belongs to God. And everything belongs to God. You have been enriched in him who has taken his riches, has become poor for our sake. You have been filled in him. Paul says that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Christ. And you are in Christ. So you have access to all those things. He's warning them, don't revert to counterfeits and shadows and types and ways of being and living that are before and outside of Christ. I don't think he's talking about sin per se. Of course, he would say avoid sin. I think he's talking about something different. I think he's condemning a way of living and approaching God and relating to God that's obsolete. I think he's talking about human systems and ideas and practices lived according to a former structure of the world before Christ came in history, before he changed, changed history. And the best example, and I do think some of this is what Paul has in mind, is the Old Testament laws and regulations. I think he has these in mind. I think it's something like what goes on in Galatians, where, he, where the Galatian Christians, who are Gentiles, are thinking about getting circumcised. And Paul wants to say, guys, circumcision was a shadow. It was a type. 
It was a temporary thing pointing to what's already happened in you by the gift of the Holy Spirit. You've already received what circumcision was pointing to. Why would you go back? Why would you revert to something that is before? The Old Testament traditions, the Old Testament regulations were just that. They were symbols. They were shadows. And Paul wants to say, you were, you were minors. You were, you, you were less. You had less under that. Why would you want to go back to that? So ultimately, I think he's warning Christians. He's saying, listen, you have everything in Christ. Why would you go looking elsewhere for something else? You have everything, all the wisdom and knowledge in Christ. Why would you look anywhere else? So maybe the best example of this in the Bible is the, the Israel in the wilderness. They were tempted to go back to Egypt. They were tempted to say, you know what? I don't like this manna. Life is kind of boring out here. It's kind of hard. And, you know, we ate better in Egypt. Man, our life was actually better in Egypt. They were slaves. They had no agency. And yet they can think, let's go back. I think this is something of what Paul is getting at. Going back to a former way of living apart from and outside of Christ. It's like Paul uses this analogy. Somebody who is the heir of a great estate. Who has been under guardians. He's been under lawyers who manage the estate. And he comes of age. And now all the money, all the property, everything that belonged to his family is now his to do with as he wants And it's as if he's going to go backwards and say, you know what, can somebody else take charge of this? Can somebody else, you know, I want to be back under guardians and I want the lawyers to be in charge of this. All those ways that Paul is describing here are like signs. All right. This is the last analogy I thought of, and maybe this this is helpful. Imagine you're, you're living in a city and you decide... You know what, we're going we're gonna to go back. There's a sign outside of town that points to the city and says Cincinnati this way or Lexington this way. We're going to go live there instead of living in the city itself. Instead of living what the sign was pointing to. All those things were pointing uh, to a fulfillment. And it's come in Christ. And Paul says, don't settle for anything else. This is the temptation to think that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not enough. It's the temptation to think that taking on his nature and being transformed by his grace is not enough. Does that make sense? We're going to be in Colossians for a while, so maybe we can keep trying to make sense. Verse 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. The temple and its symbols... The temple and its sacrifices were were temporary symbols pointing to Jesus. Paul will use this in a a verse a couple later, in a verse a few bit, a little bit later. He says, imagine the sun was setting when Kelly and I got here and the sun was over here. And if you're standing in the parking lot with your back to the sun, you can see these long shadows. Imagine a shadow comes up behind you and you go, oh, there's a person approaching. What do you do when that shadow approaches? I mean, it's a sign that somebody's coming, but when the shadow comes, you turn and you talk to the person. Paul is saying, guys, don't be tempted to just keep talking to the shadow. Can you imagine if somebody did that? Patrick walks up to me, his shadow comes up, and I just keep talking to his shadow. 
Alright? Paul is saying that that's what it's like if you, if you think that the gospel is not enough. That Christ does not have all in him that is promised in the scriptures. He is the fulfillment of the, of the system. He's the shadow cast back into the Old Testament that points forward. God has given us every promise given in the Old Testament. It is fulfilled in the person of Christ. And we have been given Christ in his fullness. That's the gospel that God gives his very self to us in his son. Verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of the flesh. By the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism. In which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. Who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing, triumphing over them in him. I wanted to try to comment on each verse, but it's hard. This is very dense. So let me just mention a few things. Circumcision. We've been circumcised in him. And again, remember, circumcision was an Old Testament rite that is done away with in the New Covenant. Notice that he says the circumcision made without hands. In Scripture, when something is made without hands, it's signifying that God is the maker of it. It's something done by him. And in the Old Testament, something made with hands usually refers to an idol. Right? But it could also refer to something temporary. But this is what circumcision was always pointing to. And Paul says you weren't literally circumcised in your flesh. But there was something that happened. There was a work that God did in your hearts by the Holy Spirit to cut away the flesh. That old right was pointing towards something that God wanted to do in the hearts of all his people. He wanted to cut away the merely human. The me without God life. The me apart from God, on my own resources, on my own wisdom, on my own understanding of life. And he says, you were circumcised with the circumcision of Christ. Well, what's that talking about? At first you think, oh, well, you know, Jesus was circumcised when he was eight eight days old in the temple. But I don't think it's that. I think it's Jesus' death on the cross. Jesus' death on the cross, we were circumcised. On the cross, Jesus died to a merely human life. He died to sin. He died to a life apart from God. And believers are connected to him. And that physical circumcision was pointing to this work that God wanted to do in the heart of his people. Through Christ and through the gift of his Holy Spirit. And so Paul uses all this language of being buried with him. Raised with him. Later, he'll say our lives are hidden with him. We are already really in God's presence and we are not yet fully what we will be. Paul will say what we're going to be. It's it's not clear to look at us now. You wouldn't know what God intends for us. All right. But one day we will be like him because we will see him. And then he uses this language of canceling debt. And it's a very vivid image. Right. It's almost like Paul is saying we have this IOU we've written to God. Or that the law has written against us before God. That I am guilty before God. That I owe God for all this failure to love. For all of this uh, selfishness and self-orientation. And that in the cross, God nails it to the cross. That he just tears it up and throws it away. 
And then that last little bit, this is my favorite part, it says he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. Paul is describing a practice that the Romans engaged in. When they conquered an enemy, they would take their leaders and they would take all of their treasure and they would bring them back to Rome and they would parade them through the streets of Rome. And they would gather, they would be carrying all the treasures that they stole, that they took from these people. And they would parade them through the city, shaming them. And you can imagine the people mocking them. And then they would usually execute them. This is what Paul is describing here. And there stands today in Rome the Arch of Titus. The Arch of Titus commemorates the Romans destroying Jerusalem in 70 AD. And you can go and look and see exactly what Paul is describing. It shows the menorahs from the temple. It shows all these things that the Romans paraded through Rome. But what Paul is talking about here is that Christ triumphed over the powers. That Christ triumphed over all these forces that are arrayed against God and arrayed against human thriving. How did he do that? Well, Paul, I want, I want to suggest, is saying that in the very moment that they were doing that to him, shaming him, parading him before people, crucifying him, he was triumphing over them in that very moment, by that very act, that God himself, by submitting to that humiliation, by submitting to that defeat, was actually stripping the powers of their authority, stripping the powers um, of their power. And he emerges victorious by his humiliation. And they were, they were shocked and surprised by this. Let me give a few uh, encouragements and observations. We're called to walk in Christ. Kelly talked last week about uh, clothes that, you know, they're beyond help. They're not even something you want to send to goodwill. They're something you might even, rather than throwing away, consider burning. Paul wants to say that that's your old life. That in baptism, the old life has been stripped away. That the circumcision that God works by the Spirit is the old you is the old way of living. And you should treat it just like you treat nasty clothes that you want to get rid of. Get them as far from you as possible. In the early church, they actually, when they, when they did baptisms in the early church, they actually went down into the water totally naked and put on new white robes because it was symbolic of putting away that old self and putting on Christ. And Paul, again, uses that very language of putting on Christ. Putting on Christ may seem preposterous, it may seem presumptuous, but that's precisely what he's called us to do. It's our birthright. It's the command of our our Lord and Master. We're called to invite him into every detail of our lives and to learn from him. Lord, how do I relate in my marriage? How do I relate to money? How do I relate to all of these things? And by the way, Jesus is brilliant at all these things. Jesus would be a great programmer. He would be a great animal trainer. He would be a great accountant. He would be a great portrait painter. He would be a great, you name it. And we get to have him as our teacher. Next, watch out for counterfeits. Paul thought it was a temptation to turn to alternatives to Christ. As if supplementing the gospel with a little bit of something else It may get us some things that we feel like we need. But Paul saw such supplementation as turning from Christ. Now, for many of his audiences, like I said, it was getting circumcised. He's saying, guys, 
You have everything. Why are you acting as if you have nothing and that you have to go through this in order to have everything that you have? Here's the question, and it's a little bit harder question. What is the temptation for us? What, what is the temptation to turn to counterfeits for us? What do we turn to instead of Christ? Thinking, well, yeah, I believe in the gospel, but I need this. I need this, maybe this wisdom. Maybe, maybe there's a source of wisdom from here. Teachings, systems, habits, ways of eating, ways of socializing that we think, oh, well, you know, this isn't necessarily Jesus teaching, but maybe there's something good here. Now, I want to be careful here because I don't think Paul would say there's no wisdom anywhere else. I think he would say all wisdom that you find anywhere, psychology, medicine, anything, is Christ's wisdom. But what I do think he's saying is this, learn Christ. Because if you learn him, then you're going to have the discernment to know when you encounter wisdom elsewhere, oh, this rhymes with Christ. And this doesn't. Does that make sense? It's only when you know the real thing that you can tell a counterfeit. And so I don't think Paul would say at all, oh no, there's not wisdom out there. There's wisdom everywhere. And Christians should recognize it. But he says, you learn to recognize it by steeping in Christ. And learning those treasures from him and exploring the treasures of Christ. Amen? He wants to warn us against going back to the weak things that cannot give us what the gospel gives us. And finally, just another comment about baptism and communion. The Lord Jesus gave us two, people call them sacraments, you can call them a ritual. It doesn't matter. It's something we do regularly. They're bodily actions that we do that represent our identity with Christ. And Paul repeatedly returns to them, communion and baptism. To talk about our lives now. He constantly refers to them. We talked about Romans 6 a couple weeks ago. Uh, here again he's talking about baptism. In these practices. In, in, in baptism and communion. We rehearse this new identity that we've been given. We're reminded repeatedly of who we are. Alright it's like, it's like communion. is this thing where we look in the mirror again and again. And go I have been bought by the blood of Jesus. I am now his. He is in me and I am in him. It's about identity formation. In a world that wants to change our identity and teach us to cultivate our identity in all kinds of directions. I am in Christ. I am beloved. I'm welcomed at this table, not because I deserve to be welcomed at this table, but because the gospel invites me to this table. And at this table, I am a beloved son. Because of what Christ has done. I am a part of his body here on earth. And I carry inside of me the greatest treasure. All of us carry inside of us the greatest treasure the world has ever known. The gospel of Jesus. The presence of Jesus Christ by the power of his Holy Spirit. The church is not supposed to be a place where people police you into behaving properly. The church is meant to be a place where you're welcomed and where other people, through example, through teaching, through support, help you receive the gospel into the depths of your being so that you begin more and more to live out the gospel out of the depths of your heart. Amen? And that's what we again and again remind ourselves as we come to this table. So when we stand up tonight and we'll, uh, we'll once again remind ourselves of what God has done and who we are because of what he's done.